The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take your personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Participants in this podcast may also own the securities discussed. For more information, head over to investmart.com.au. Welcome to what will be the final edition for Skin in the Game. I'm your host, Portfolio Manager, Nathan Bell, and joining me today is Alex Hughes, our Small Cap Portfolio Manager. Welcome, Alex. G'day, Nath. Hi, First everyone. of all, congratulations. You're a father now. I am, yes. Yeah, I made the crazy decision of having a child during reporting season. So it's been a tough time, but um, yeah, amazing to bring a child into this world. So just to explain why this is the last Skin in the Game, we've recently started doing weekly podcasts for stock take uh, with the intelligent investor team and we've also been taking questions from members uh, and answering them in the podcast just as Alex and I have been doing here so Alex and I are going to roll ourselves into the stock take podcast we won't be on there every week but uh, if you remember then you can submit quick questions just as you do now for skin in the game if you're not already a member of intelligent investor uh, but you're an investor uh, in our funds then my understanding is that you're already receiving Eureka uh, free of charge as part of your investment, and I believe it's an extra $200 to upgrade to Intelligent Investor. So uh, I think there's a lot of value in Intelligent Investor, and, and $200 is not a lot extra, but um, but you will have to pay the extra money if you want to be able to send any questions and have Alex and I and also the Intelligent Investor team answer them. But with that, uh, it's been a very busy reporting season, and we've got a bunch of questions to get through as it's been uh, – uh, a month or so before our last podcast. Alex, hello. I'm interested in your thoughts on Austal. Keep up the great work. Regards, Greg. Thoughts on Austal? Austal, yeah. I actually owned this many years ago. They, It was post-GFC. They, um, they've actually built a boat and they funded that with their own money instead of using third-party money in order to retain their staff. And this was post-GFC when... Um, demand dried up and, and you know they had a big workforce there and they wanted to retain the workforce um, but there wasn't enough work to keep them so they funded a boat themselves and they got themselves into strife and they did a sort of an emergency capital raising at 50 cents now Austell right now is a completely different picture where there's lots of demand for new boats um, the utilisation is high they've got a big pipeline predominantly from US government work um, and they've got that improving learning curve where they've been building the same boat design over and over and um, they, they get better at it and they get higher margins. Um, in addition to that, they've also got more service work where they're servicing the, their fleet of boats that's operating um, in oceans throughout the world. Um, they, they've got a strong capability in al- al- aluminium ships. Um, but for me, it's just a, a, a function of valuation. In my opinion, this is not a fantastic business. Um, they've been executing well, um, but it's cyclical. There's lots of operating leverage and it's not something that you'd want to put in the bottom drawer if there ever is such a thing. Um, so, yeah, at this point in time, no interest in... I think they also had a capital raising, was it maybe 2012, $1.50, I think it was around, or $1.70. And it was actually a really good opportunity because I think they had, a, from memory, the, a big ferry that they're, they're going to sell and they were sort of halfway through the transition to doing... I think they really come unstuck. It was a Greg Norman's uh, boat that they did and it just the cost blew out and they had to wear it. And now the earnings are much better uh, because of the U.S. government uh, Navy contracts, which is, as you said, keeps the utilisation up and it's just a much easier boat to build. And they just know the economics so much better than they do when you get one really large order from a rich individual. 
but still, it's uh, I've just noticed a lot of small cap managers talking about the stock at the moment. It's a long way from the dollar fifty capital raising, so it's not really a secret anymore, and it's not a high quality business either. Next question. Hello, Nathan. Alex, a report was released this week shorting Rural Funds Group for potentially misreporting profit from a few of its largest leases and for their company structure. I have listened to the podcast for a long time and currently hold RFF. I was hoping you could advise your view of the claims made in the Benitez report, particularly regarding the company set up to take profits through their private entity. Many thanks, Daniel. Yeah, for me, it's not a business I know well, and I haven't had time to read that short report with reporting season going on, um, so I can't add much. No, unfortunately, I don't uh, have anything on this business. Uh, I get very worried when any short report comes out because the level of uh, investigation and, and analysis to make a, take a short position is just much higher than it is for buying high-quality businesses on the long side. And uh, there was one in a uh, company I owned a little bit of as a Hong Kong company recently and a short report come out. And as I was going through the detail, there was just no way in the world I could go through the list of issues that the shorts brought up. And for that reason alone, I sold out, um, took the loss on the chin. Uh, again, just because the level of detail that you need to um, provide or to be able to investigate uh, to, to quash those claims is just so high. And, and I've learned a little bit from John Hampton over the years because we used to share an office. Uh, we used to share his internet, actually, because uh, we lived, uh, worked in the office above him. And, and he's all about, and I've just known through the amount of work that he does, the way he shorts and the level of detail he goes into and the understanding he has that if you see a company or a fund manager shorting your business, you want to be really sure that the investment case is airtight. That's not to say that uh, all shorters are genuine, and particularly up in the places around Asia where they can make quick profits uh, by talking down a company. Uh, but um, sorry, on this case, Daniel, I just don't know the details. Yeah, there's a lot to be said for owning simple businesses with you know clear economics and conservative accounting, and I don't think rural funds as well. Uh, I, was, I was going at the, the first mention of rural. Hi, boys. In the recent podcast with Atlas Arteria, you say longer toll roads are better. Why is this? And you seem to talk about stocks mostly, but would love your thoughts on when EBITDA is useful, as I think either Charlie and Warren refer to it as shit earnings. If it's not in the theme of the podcast, all good. Cheers, Hugh. Happy holder of the Small Caps Fund. So first of all, I'd say uh, very much talking about EBITDA as a uh, financial metric is, is um, definitely something we're happy to talk about. Uh, and in terms of, uh, so we'll come back to that, but first, why are long, longer toll roads better? Uh, well, an old, uh, well, a friend of mine and an ex-Intelligent investor, owner and analyst, Steve Johnson, wrote a blog about this a long time ago. I think it was around the GFC and just compared the financial metrics for businesses like Transurban, who mostly own very long toll roads, and there's others in Canada, and compared them to the results that you see for much shorter toll roads. And if you have a look at the toll roads, uh, there was one in Brisbane, which I, I can't remember exactly what the name was, which went, I think it went bankrupt three times uh, before Transurban acquired it. And the other one that uh, has performed miserably in Sydney is the Cross City Tunnel. And I actually think the Cross City Tunnel is absolutely brilliant because uh, it takes you directly from the northern side of Sydney as you come across the bridge or under the Sydney Harbour Bridge and uh, brings you out almost directly where we live. So 
Uh, it's absolutely worth its weight in gold. But the problem seems to be that people generally, if they think the road's fairly short and they can avoid the toll, then they tend to do so. And the problem when you have these toll roads in the first place that cost you know, billions of dollars to create, and if you don't get anywhere near the amount of traffic that you expect, uh, the financials are an absolute disaster. I don't know if you've got any more comments on the length of toll roads, Alex. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> uh, but I should also point out these, uh, the toll road in Melbourne, uh, which I think is the East Link, uh, but it's, I think it's 39 kilometres long and it is the most profitable toll road in the world. And so if my reasoning is correct, that people just tend to avoid short roads uh, because they think they can and they're just not going to waste too much time uh, avoiding them, uh, then even if that's not true, the fact is the financial metrics just prove that the, the long uh, toll roads are by far and away the most profitable. So uh, getting back to the second part of the question is, is EBITDA a good financial metric to use? Alex? Um, I think the best way to think about it is that it's one tool in the toolbox. So if you, if you try and use it for everything, you're going to get into problems, but it, it's useful in specific areas. Um, it gets heavily criticised and, you know, you hear about earnings before everything or, um, you know, how the tooth fairy is going to pay for CapEx and so on. Um, and I think that's right because I think it is overused. Um, but if you use it to compare the operational performance of two businesses, um, EBITDA can be helpful when they have made different discretionary decisions on certain things. So say, for example, company A, company B, say if they're identical, but management have made different assumptions regarding um, the assets and the depreciation profiles of the two, then EBITDA might be useful in that case to compare the operational performance. Um, same is true for different capital structures, different tax rates, and so on. So, um, And it's also um, a marker of operational profitability. So, for instance, Frontier Digital Ventures um, has a number of um, online classifieds. Many of them are loss-making, and so EBITDA is an important milestone when they, um, they start to generate some cash um, pre um, the depreciation interest and everything else. Um, so yeah, that's when you use it, but you don't want to use it for valuation because obviously it doesn't cover, doesn't include CapEx, doesn't include tax, doesn't include interest. So you need to think about all of those other costs. And yeah, I think the most important thing is, as you explained, Alex, is why are you using it? And if you are going to use it at all, you need to understand the pros and cons of doing so. And just to give you one example of on the sort of guess the pro uh, where it can work well or where it can understate earnings but also where it can overstate earnings is a lot of software companies uh, so let's take real, realestate.com.au so it probably has um, amortization or certainly used to going through um, the earnings uh, as it's built up at software over time but if you actually compare EBITDA to the cash coming out of the business uh, over time the cash has actually exceeded um, the earnings or reported earnings picture uh, because all the investment is up front. So that's a, a sign, uh, I guess, an example where you want to actually look at the cash flows rather than the reported earnings. But on the flip side, there's a lot of companies that like to use uh, the concept of EBIT or EBITDA because it just shows their financials in a much better light. And, and again, in companies where there actually is a lot of depreciation uh, in particular, where or capex is uh, capital expenditure is increasing over time, then the EBITDA is not going to give you um, an accurate uh, version of what the future earnings are going to look like because the depreciation is historic 
and isn't looking forward. So like I, I always say that price to earnings ratio is the most overused and abused ratio in investing. But the important point is you just need to understand why you're using it. And as long as you understand that, um, then you can either ignore it or, or you know what value you're getting out of it. Yeah, there's never a perfect ratio out there. It's, it's one measure. You need to look at lots of different things as well. Yeah, and I think one area where EBITDA can be useful, but it's the same with any metric, is just comparing a couple of companies in the same industry. If one's got a profit margin that's much higher than the other, then it's actually uh, good to go and find out why. It might be some, something different that the business does or it just might be really poor management. Uh, but if you can get to the bottom of that, then you can actually work out that there may actually be an opportunity. Hi guys, back again with another small cap, this time Acro Fallwork. They do scaffolding for residential infrastructure projects across Australia. It's growing, it's got a PE of around four or five, market cap of $48 million, with net assets of around $46 million, mostly made up of cash, property, plant and equipment. Pays a divvy and uh, it's trading at less than one time sales. Looks like management have also successfully pivoted away from residential scaffolding to infrastructure projects. Cheers, Patrick. Any thoughts? Yeah, I I remember an old story about Ken Nelson from Platinum, where when someone would come to him and pitch him a stock, he would often ask them, "What do, what what does it got? What what's it got?" And and what he was getting at is he was trying to get to the essence of of the business and what unique attributes that it has that really distinguishes it from competitors or, or really makes it special and unique. And, and when I look at a business like a crow, um, and, and I think we also cover this in a prior podcast as well, um, to me, it, it just looks like a, a reasonably mediocre business. It, surely it trades on low um, multiples of earnings and intangible assets, um, but it probably should because to me, this business doesn't have a huge potential to you know, compound its earnings over a number of years. So I struggle to see what this business has that, that really gets you excited as an investor. And, and, and I say that, I bring up the, the, the comment from Ken Nelson because most businesses underperform over the long term. Most businesses either get disrupted away or struggle to earn their cost of capital and, and just sort of um, drift off into non-existence. And, and so I think you really need to focus on the outliers in, in terms of really high quality businesses, or if you are looking to buy them on a low valuation, they need to be extremely low valuation. And I, I just think a crow is, is neither of the, of the two there. I think we may have brought this up also recently in a podcast that uh, there was some research that came out a couple of months ago that showed it was something like three or 4% of all stocks provide all the returns in the stock market. Yeah, over 70 years or something like that. So it's a decent subset. I mean, that's just incredible. Uh, I think there's two parts to that. One, it's about yeah. avoiding the, the lousy companies, but, but also just uh, a lot of people think believe in reversion to the mean, but if you can find those great businesses where those competitive advantages are so strong that their earnings or margins just don't come back to the average, uh, then they're the sort of compounders you can own for decades and uh, provide the backbone of your returns over long periods of time. Absolutely, and when you do when you do get onto one of those winners, you really want to hang on to it and make sure that you don't sell it too early. Yeah, I keep telling my that tell, telling myself that after NanoSonics went up another twenty five percent the other day. <laughs> just uh, don't sell the good businesses. Hello, I'm interested in the reason why dividend paying companies choose to suspend the dividend reinvestment plan. Are they trying to avoid diluting the share price? Uh, there's a second part to this question, but do you want to handle that one first, Alex? 
Um, there could be a number of reasons. I guess the reason they implement the dividend reinvestment plan in the first place is because they want additional capital to come into the business. So instead of having um, that cash leave the business via the dividend, um, they get shareholders to subscribe for more shares. So perhaps the capital intensity of the business has changed and, and therefore they, they don't need um, the dividend reinvestment plan in place. That could be one reason. Um, and off the top, I can't think of any more. <laughs> you got anything else, Matt? I just, I just think you need to be, when you see a dividend reinvestment plan, I remember when I was uh, about 19 years old and I got a letter in the mail from National Australia Bank in which I held a few shares and they said they were offering shares at, I think it was at $19.50, which remarkably, remember this is uh, 25 years ago, uh, the share price is really not that much higher now. And we've had an enormous credit boom, which I just find you know, quite fascinating. Uh, back then, NAB was actually considered the best bank in Australia. And you know, I was so naive, I actually thought, uh, because remember, it's always pitched at a discount to the share price. I thought, how nice is this company looking after its shareholders, offering me these shares at a discount? You know, I, I just didn't have the experience to ask myself, why do they actually need this money? What are they going to use it for? And as history showed, they, they went abroad and blew up billions of dollars on buying a, a bank or um, savings uh, company as Northern something in in the US, but anytime I think of companies like the banks, for example, where the dividend reinvestment plan participation rate is very high, and the thing is they actually need that capital uh, to reinvest in the business and keep uh, supplying, you know, producing more loans, and they need to hit their uh, regulatory hurdles as well. So even though a lot of companies pay out high dividends, the fact that they're actually just taking the capital back. And often the dividend reinvestment plan is at a discount. So it's actually just diluting um, share, some shareholders. And it's not really, I don't really see dividend reinvestment plans as a good thing generally. Um, there can be good reasons for a company to raise capital, but you really want to understand what those reasons are. The second part of the question is Donico, Code DNA, and Blackmore's BKL have taken a real hit recently. Is the investment thesis broken, or is it a matter of absorbing the short term pain? Regards, Greg. I'll let you handle Donico first, Alex. <laughs> you don't often hear Donico and Blackmores get lumped together, so that's quite funny. Um, but yeah, so Donico, um, just to give a quick background, so Donico bought a casino in Cambodia a number of years ago. Um, the vendor of that casino um, became a board member. He initially operated the casino, um, and then that um, agreement finished. And he then broke his non-compete clause and began competing with that Cambodian casino illegally. Um, Donico initiated a legal suit against him um, and he brought one back against Donico. Um, the, the vendor's suit is in Cambodia and Donico's is in um, the Singapore arbitration courts. So this week we had a ruling from the Cambodian arbitration and that was in favour of the vendor and that could potentially give them the potential to um, extinguish the lease. And so what that would mean is that Donico would cease to operate in Cambodia and the vendor would have to buy the property, plant, and equipment back off Donico um, because Dono leases the property um, for 50 years, I believe, um, but they own all the fixtures and fittings. Um, so this, this risk was always a known unknown um, because this legal case has been ongoing for a number of years now. Um, and, and so it, it wasn't sort of a surprise that this happened because um, uh, it was always on the table. Um, but it really depends on what happens going forward. So Donico has appealed in the local court in Phnom Penh. 
um, and that is likely to play out. And so they're still operating the casino, still um, receiving the cash flow from it, and that will continue until there's a conclusion on that appeal. And they also said in the conference call that they can appeal in the Supreme Court thereafter, and they, and they thought it might take several years for this to be resolved. So in terms of that actual property, it's, it's business as usual. Um, now, from an investment standpoint, um, when we first looked at this business, we always knew that, that this was a risk, and so we had a backstop in mind, and, and that was the property pun and, and, and equipment value, which is around $50 million, which sort of approximates the market cap right now. They also have the Vietnamese casino, which generates about $14 million EBITDA, um, has been more consistent of the two, um, and has actually improved in July under new management. Um, so that's potentially worth more than the market cap right now and, and provides quite a decent backstop. Now, in my mind, we've, we're still waiting for the Singaporean arbitration to conclude, which is expected um, later this year. I think it kicks off again in November. Um, and Donico's claim has increased to $240 million US dollars, um, up from 190 So we're talking nearly $350 million Australian dollars they're pursuing. Um, obviously, that's an inflated claim. I don't think they'd get anywhere near close to that, if at all. Um, but the fact that there's sort of these cross claims means that, in my mind, the, these legal issues are going to go on for a long time. Um, and probably a settlement is the best course of action for both parties. Otherwise, it's just going to be a mess and there's going to be a lot of money wasted on legal fees. Um, in terms of the merit of the claims, I mean, it, in my mind, it did look like there is an element of corruption to the Cambodian one. Um, I think the Singaporean arbitration case is more likely to be legitimate. Um, but um, again, these are all things that are hard to estimate from the outside. So um, the share price has factored this in. Um, it's trading at a very low valuation. If, if you think of the worst case scenario, if Don, Donico ceased to operate the Cambodian business, if it received some sort of payment um, from the vendor for that, for the pro property plan and equipment, obviously there's risks around collectability. Um, but you've got the backstop of the Vietnamese casino there with 14 mil EBITDA. So um, new management seems like they're improving things. Um, they've already lifted EBITDA in July with you know only about a month of operation. Um, so there's potential there. So lots of moving parts. It's a, it's a really messy, risky situation. Um, but again, it, it looks very, very cheap and it looks like much of this is factored into the price. Donico makes Blackmore's problems seem uh, quite small. So... The case with Blackmores is that it's very much a turnaround from here and it has been for a while now after having sacked uh, its CEO. Uh, the company's really said the CEO opted to move on, but um, my guess is they forced him to move on. And Marcus Blackmore has been out for you know, three or four months now, probably telling the market and telling anyone who will listen what's wrong with the company. And, and I actually really like that. Uh, the fact that he's, you know, his or his father was the founder of the business, but the family shareholdings in the business. He hasn't sold any shares. He cares about the business. He cares about his staff, but he understands that we're running a business with uh, shareholders. It's a listed company, and the costs are blown out. And as hard as it is to cut people uh, in a business that perhaps that you've been friendly with or have had in the business for a long time, uh, that's one of the major things that needs to happen. The other thing that Blackmores needs to do is start producing new and innovative products and, and in particular get them into China. We, uh, the Chinese distribution at the moment is not just hurting Blackmores, but it's hurting a lot of companies as the country wants uh, China to be far more self-sufficient in a bunch of industries. And so it's been 
penalising uh, importers uh, with a lot of increased regulation and a lot of importers have just walked away and said this is too hard and Blackmores has been caught up in that. The ball case for Blackmores is that the balance sheet's in decent shape for the moment. It's actually got a bit more debt at the moment than it's had uh, just about ever, uh, probably ever actually, uh, because it's bought a new manufacturing facility uh, just outside of Melbourne that uh, Marcus Blackmore believes will give them more control over production and allow them to quicken up R&D and get more products out. The new CEO hasn't even sat down yet. It's another, uh, I think it's two more weeks, two and a half more weeks before he sits down. So it's going to take at least six months for the new chief to sit down, talk to people, work out exactly what he needs to do, come up with the right strategy, and then it's going to take you know, 12 months minimum to 24 months before I expect you'll start seeing results. So it is a turnaround. Turnarounds almost always take longer than expected, but the balance sheet's okay. Um, revenue has been hit, I guess, a little bit hard recently, but it's the profit margins that are the should be the easiest thing to fix, and Marcus Blackmore's already cutting costs, but I expect the, the new chief will come in and, and cut harder. He's also got a background in China, so hopefully that helps with the relationships there. So it's going to be a long turnaround. I've currently got small positions of Blackmore's uh, in some of the funds. It's only around 1.5% at the moment, down from 2 and I won't add to that or won't even consider adding to that until we actually start to see signs of the turnaround. Second last question, or the last question is, hi guys, would appreciate your views on RPM Global. Waiting for a return on the change in their revenue model seems to be like waiting for Godot in that it's, uh, the change is never coming. <laughs> Cheers, Alan. <laughs> yes, I, I've also been waiting a long time for this and I was actually really impressed with the result here. So um, RPM Global has invested $70 million in R&D since about 2012 and it's completing that R&D program and that will taper with attrition um, over time. So that's one one positive. Um, but probably the biggest positive was that just the software sales they recorded in the financial year. Um, so the recurring side of things with the annual recurring revenue is up to $7 million um, and that's, that's strong growth on the prior year. Um, and that's important because the total contract value is, is almost three times that um, because these are often three-year deals they enter into. So they recognize $7 million of recurring revenue and they forego $21 million of perpetual license sales they would have recorded in the past. Um, so that tells me two things that, that, that are important. The first is that they, they having traction, um, but they're also the first year into, the, I guess, the most painful year of the, this transition. So when you move from selling perpetual licenses to recurring licenses, um, the first year is, is all, always the most painful. And I think a lot of investors have sat on the sidelines um, for that reason. Um, so the fact that they've transitioned much of their business to recurring revenue um, you know, with $7 million of ARR plus their maintenance revenue, um, they're up to about $30 million of recurring revenue. And, and again, this is a, a software business that has a market cap of about 130 or 40 at the moment. Um, they've got $30 million of cash. They also own a, an advisory business that generates about $5 million of um, pre-tax profit before this, the corporate costs. Um, so, you know, you're trading, you, you're paying a very low price here for what I think is quite a strong business in its category. Um, I think in, in addition to the, this revenue transition, um, which is keeping investors on the sidelines, I just also think that the business just isn't widely known. It's only covered by one Brisbane 
based broker, which is um, Veritas, which is quite small. And I think that's largely due to the fact that the company is really just focused on its on things it can control, focus on its products, focusing on its sales channels, um, and just ensuring that it's getting what it can control right. Um, and, and that's great. That's what we want to see as investors. Um, but it, it means that, you know, they're not really introducing the story to a wider um, portion of the investment community. Um, I think that that may not change over time. They, they seem to be just focused on what they're doing. Um, but if that ever did change, if other investors start to catch on, then um, that's when you might see some movement in the share price. But I sympathize with you. It has been frustrating. Um, but what keeps me there is that I think they are executing. I think they are adding real value. And I think this business is worth much more than the share price. So despite the fact that we're not getting, we're not seeing that reflected in the share price, um, I think it's worth the wait. I suspect the consultancy business uh, is muddies the, the accounts and the investment case a little bit. Do you think they'd ever get rid of that? Yeah, I, initially I thought that they were they were interested to get rid of that immediately. Um, when, when I say that, I mean going back, say, three or four years. Um, but, but now that it's performing well, they seem um, less keen to get rid of it. Now, I, I, I agree. I think it would be a, a, simp, a simpler business if they were just a software company. Um, I, I think they would sell it if they got a good offer for it. Um, I have talked to them about selling it, and they're reluctant to go out there shopping it around because... As soon as you do that, you know, you get lowball bids and people think that there's a problem with the business and that type of thing. So if someone came to them, I think they'd sell it. Um, but yeah, this, at this stage, there's nothing on the horizon. Um, so yeah, that is, a, that is an impediment that, that probably keeps investors away as well. And the last stock to talk about today, Alex, is Webjet. Webjet, yeah. So I think we had a question on Webjet a few weeks back. Um, so we're just trying to catch up on that. So we've got the full year results to talk about. Um, I actually think this business is interesting. Um, and we've seen the price come off. And um, I, I don't think the price is excessive here. Um, I know this business confuses investors. Um, and I think we can we can see a reason for that because most investors are, are really rational people and they struggle to see why people would pay a booking fee when they can go direct to airlines. And and, and there is a rational argument to that. But um, if, if you've read books by Daniel Kahneman or Richard Thaler, um, you know, they talk about econs and humans. And, you know, econs are these sort of mythical creatures that are cold, calculating, rational beings. And then there's humans who are flawed and, you know, make... Um, mistakes with their finances all the time and um, it just so happens that people are willing to pay booking fees for webjet services because it's convenient because it makes life easy because you know they can store their details and um, book the family's flights and pay one booking fee and do so very quickly via an app Um, so I actually actually think that that business is stronger than people realize Um, but the I guess the main reason why I think this business is interesting is the bed bank business so, and, and this often confuses investors as well, um, but essentially what it does is that it provides electronic inventory of hotels to wholesale buyers. So if you think, if you're a tour group operator, or if you're another online travel agent, or if you're an airline, or anyone that wants to sell hotels, um, they can take Webjet's API, plug that into their system, and that API delivers pricing and availability data of hotels in real time. So they can sell hotels um, electronically. So really sticky. Um, this business is, is on track for 50% EBITDA margins, high returns on capital. And it's actually a really fragmented business globally. Um, 
and they've got a very small share. Um, so there's potential for growth here. Now, the reason why the prices come down, I think, is largely due to Thomas Cook. So this is a, a business they did a deal with back in 2016. They took over the hotel inventory relationships um, and provided their services to Thomas Cook. And the deal was structured in a way that they incurred all of the cost up front. Um, and so it's been a drag on profitability for years. Um, and they would only start recognizing revenue in 2020. Um, so now in the coming year, they're about to recognize revenue. And the fact that all the costs are already incurred means that this revenue will be 100% margin. So it will flow directly to the EBITDA line. Now, the problem is that Thomas Cook is highly leveraged um, and it's encountered financial troubles recently um, and is in the process of being taken over. Um, so as a result, Webjet's going to record lower revenue from that. So you've got this one contract, which has resulted in a earnings downgrade for financial year 2020. Um, so I think apart from that, they're, they're executing really well, but it's just this one hiccup that's outside of their control. Um, but in saying that, you, you know, you've got an, an operator in um, the CEO, he owns $85 million worth of stock. He's been there for a long time. He's executed brilliantly over that time. And he's also got experience running um, a B2B business in the past. So he, he was the COO of Webjet's main competitor there. So he's, he's got experience and he's obviously, um, he's proven himself in the public markets. So, um, yeah, I actually think it's, it's looking quite interesting. Um, but in saying that, there is, there's always risk with the economy. Um, they, they noted that um, bookings improved by 9% um, post the election. So that's encouraging. But I think that if we did see a downturn in the Australian economy, which is certainly possible, um, this business would take a hit. So you need to keep that in mind when you're thinking about position sizing, sizing the position of something like this. Brilliant. Thanks for the detailed analysis, Alex. Uh, we missed a few questions today, mainly because we didn't have anything intelligent to add. Uh, but if you want to send questions from now on, uh, just do that through the Intelligent Investor website. So that's it for Skin in the Game for the moment. Thank you for your support. Thank you, Alex. Uh, but you can uh, hear us again um, every Monday. We record the Stock Tape podcast and it's usually published on a Tuesday. So we'll, we'll see you there instead. Thanks again. To learn more about the income, growth and small companies funds, head over to investsmart.com.au. Relevant disclosure documents should be read before making any investment decisions.